0: The Fireman Part 4 of Careers of Danger and Daring This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat The Fireman Part 4 Famous Rescues by New York fireboats from Red-Hot Ocean Liners After all has been said, that may be, about our admirable fire-engines, and endless stories have been told of gallant fights made by the engine lads for life and property, there remains this fact, that New York possesses a far more formidable weapon against fires than the plucky little steamers that go clanging and tooting about our streets. The fireboat is as much superior to the familiar fire engine as a rapid-fire cannon is superior to a rifle. A single fireboat, like the New Yorker, will throw as much water in a given time as twenty ordinary fire engines. It will throw twelve thousand gallons a minute—that is, fifty tons! Or, if we imagine this great quantity of water changed into a rope of ice, say an inch thick, it would reach twenty miles. Suppose we go aboard her now, this admirable New Yorker, and look about a little. People come a long way to see her, and she's the largest and finest fireboat in the world. Pretty isn't she? All brass and hardwood and electric lights, everything shining like a pleasure yacht. Looks like a gunboat with rows of cannons all about her—queer, stumpy little cannons that have wheels above their mouths. Those are hose connections. Like hydrants in a city, where they screw fast the rubber lines, she has twenty-one on a side— that makes forty-two gates, as the engineers call them, without counting four monitors aloft. Those things on the pile house that look like telescopes with long, red tails, it was the monitors especially big daddy that did such a great work against those north german loiters in their drift down the river in 1900 with decks ablaze and red hot iron hulls we shall hear about that day if we sit down quietly on the fire quarters shore and get the crew started stepping overside again here we are in the home of the fireboat crew It's more like a club than an engine-house. No horses stamping about, no stable, but pictures on the wall. And the men playing cribbage or reading, and nobody in a hurry. Plenty of time for tales of adventure, unless that gong takes to tapping. And here comes Gallagher, sliding down yonder brass column from the sleeping-rooms. He's the lad who did fine things in that great fire at Mallory Pier. Saved a man's life, and made the roll of honor by it. We'll never get the story from him, but the other boys will tell us. If ever fireboats prove their value, it was that night in May 1900 when Pier 19 East River caught fire, with all its length of inflammable freight. Close to three o'clock in the morning it was, and a hurricane from the northeast was driving the flames towards land. Before the engine could start, a fire-wave had leapt across the south street, and was raging down the block, and another fire-wave had leapt across the dock between Pier 19 and Pier 20, setting fire to a dozen barges and lighters moored there, and to the steamship nooses of the Mallory line. And presently all these were blazing, some with cargoes of cotton and oil, blazing until the lower end of the island looked out of the night in ghastly illumination, a terrible picture in red and black. They say it was bright enough that night, half a mile away, for a man to pick up a pin. There is no harder problem for the engines than these fierce-driven water-front fires that sweep in suddenly shoreward, for they must be taken head-on, with all the smoke in the firemen's faces, and water often lacking, strange to say, although the river is so near. For the fireboats, however, the advantage is the other way. They attack from the rear, where they see what they are doing, and can pump from a whole ocean. Besides that, they attack with so formidable a battery that no hook-and-ladder core is needed to break open for them. The three-inch streams from Big Daddy alone will tear off roofs and drip out beams like the play of artillery, and if that is not sufficient, The boys have only to hitch on the four-and-a-half-inch nozzle and set the two pumps feeding it five thousand gallons a minute, or twenty tons of water. Under that shock, there is no wall built of brick-and-mortar that will not crumble. When the New Yorker came upon this memorable night, the fifth alarm had sounded, and things were looking serious. Piers nineteen and twenty were in full flame, and every floating thing between them. Into this street of fire streamed the big fireboat, straight in with four streams playing to the port and four to the starboard, all doing their prettiest. She went ahead slowly, fighting back the flames foot by foot on pier and steamship, and kindling small craft that drifted in fiery procession and The air in the men's faces was like the breath of a furnace. Here it was that Gallagher won his place on the roll of honor in this wise. For some time they had heard shouts that were lost in the din of conflagration. But presently they made them out as a warning from somebody, somewhere, that a man was on a burning barge just passing them. It seemed incredible that a man could be there, alive and silent. But with the spirit of his trade, Gallagher determined to see if it were true. He would board the barge anyhow, and as the New Yorker swung close alongside, he sprang down to her deck, where things were a good deal warmer than is necessary for a man's health. And as he leapt, John Kerrigan, at the steering wheel of the Big Daddy, turned its mighty stream against the barge, keeping it just over Gallagher's head, so the spray drenched down upon him, while the stream itself smote a path ahead through the fire. Down this path went Gallagher, searching for a man, avoiding pitfalls of smoke and treacherous timbers, confident that Kerrigan would hold the flames back. Yet see to it that the terrible, battering-ram of water did not strike him, for to be struck with the full force of Big Daddy's stream is like being pounded by a drip-hammer. Gallagher reached the cabin door, found it locked put his back against it, and smashed it in. And he went in, groping, choking, feeling his way, searching for this man. And at last on one of the bunks he found him, stretched out in a stupor of sleep, or drowsed by the stifle of gases. The man was a Swede named Thomas Bund, and he came out of that cabin on Gallagher's back, came off that burning barge on Gallagher's back. And if he does not bless the name of Gallagher all his days— Then there is no gratitude in Sweden. Here we see the kind of service the fireboats render. On this night they saved the situation and a million dollars besides. They worked against a blazing steamship, against blazing piers, against blazing runaways, worked for eleven hours until the last smolder of fire had been drowned under thirty thousand tons of water. And not a year passes, but they do something of like sort now it is a steamship, say the ill starred Leona, that comes up the bay with a cargo of cotton burning between decks. The New Yorker makes short work of her. Again, it is a blazing lumber district along the river, like the great McClave yards, where the fireboats fought for eight days and nights before they gained the victory. But they did gain it. Or it may be a fire back from the river, like the Tarrant Horror. Where the land engines, sore pressed, welcome far carried streams from the fireboats, as help that may turn the balance. Why this fireboat's only ten years old, sir, said Captain Brasted, and she save more than she cost every year we've had her. Then he added, as his eyes dwelt proudly on the trim craft purring at her dockside, and she cost a tidy sum, too. Let us come now to that placid summer afternoon, to that terrible Saturday, june thirtieth, nineteen hundred, when tugboats in the North River looked upon a fire the like of which the river had never known and may not know again. They looked from a distance, we may be sure, these tugboats, for when Great Liner swings downstream a roaring red hot furnace, it is time for wooden deck craft to scurry out of the way. And there were three liners in such case—the Bremen, the Sail, and the Main. All burning furiously and beyond human help, one would say, for their iron hulls were vast fire-traps, with portholes too small for rescue, and the decks swept with flame. It was hard to know that back of those steep sides were men in anguish, held like prisoners in a fortress of glowing steel that sizzled as it drifted three fortresses of glowing steel. Then up steamed the New Yorker and the Van Wyck. With men behind the fire-shields against the blistering scorch and glare, with monitors and pipe-rails spurting out all that the pumps could send, the New Yorker took the Bremen, the Van Wyck took the sail. And there they lay for hours close on the edge of the fire like a pair of salamanders engines throbbing pumps pounding pilots at the wheel watching every moment of the liners following foot by foot and drawing in closer when they gained on the fire holding away a shade when the fire gained on them fighting every minute it's queer said captain brasted but when you play a broadside of heavy streams on a vessel's side say at 50 feet there's a strong recoil that keeps driving the fireboat back. It's as if you were pushing off all the time with poles instead of water, and you have to keep closing in with the engines. How near did you get to the Bremen, I ask? Oh, we finally got right up against her, say, after 45 minutes. You can cool off a lot of red-hot iron in 45 minutes when you got 45 tons of water a minute doing it with you. It was just as they came alongside that one of the crew made out a human shape in the coal chute, some ten feet up the Bremen side, and presently they saw others there, blackened faces, fierce and fearful eyes, and above the fire-crackle and the crash they heard the men's cries. Straight away a ladder was brought, and the three of the crew, Breen, Kerrigan, and Hartman, lifted it on their shoulders until the top rung came up the level with the coal chute. But this, instead of bringing relief to the fire-bound company, brought madness, for now they fought and struggled so, each one wishing to go first, that none were able to go at all. They were like wild beasts," said one of the crew. In this crisis Gallagher swung up the, the ladder to the top, where he could look in through the hole, the one hole in all the vessel's sides that was large enough for a man's body to pass and reaching in there he grabbed what was nearest, arm, leg, or shock of hair, and hauled it out, and lowered it down the ladder to Captain Brasted, who stood below him and passed the bundle on. Then Gallagher grabbed again and again, pulling forth by sheer strength one man at a time, taking them as they came—Germans or Italians, officers or coal-handlers—anything that was alive. Down came the tumbling masses, yelling, praying, fighting a miserable human stream, and when it was all over, and the count was taken, they had saved thirty-two lives. Now one of the rescued men spoke up in broken English, and said that there were others still on the Bremen, down in the engine-room, and Gallagher volunteered to go aboard for the rescue if one of the men who knew the vessel would come along to guide him. But no man offered this service. It was too hazardous a thing, they said. Where the fire was not raging there was smoke and darkness, and the engine-room was far down in the vessel. They had groped about themselves for a half an hour in despair, searching for the way out, and now that they had found it, they were not fools enough to go in again. "'But you say there are others in there alive,' insisted Gallagher. The rescued ones shook their head blankly at this point. In their minds the law of self-preservation rode over all other things at this moment. Poor men! They were half-dazed by their sufferings and the shock. "'All right!' cried Gallagher. "'I'll go in and find him without any guide. Hold the ladder, boys!' And up he went. "'I'm with you, Ned,' called Captain Brasted. And without more words, these two climbed in through the coal chute, and started down the black-hot, stifling way for the engine-room. And somehow they got there safely, and found eight men still alive, all Germans, engineers and their assistants. But when the firemen called to them to hurry out for their lives, they refused to move. Their duty was with their engines, said they and they had to run the engines. They were much obliged to the American gentlemen, but they could not leave their posts. Gallagher and Brasted could hardly believe their ears. "'But you will die,' they urged. The Germans thought it very likely. Still, they could not leave. "'But it won't do any good. The vessel is past hope. You will be burned to death.' The Germans understood perfectly. They would be burned to death at their engines and as they were all of this mind, and not to be shaken, the firemen could only say good-bye, and set forth sadly on the return journey. And this time they nearly lost themselves, but at last their good star prevailed, and they came without harm to their comrades, who listened in wonder to the news they brought. It seemed such utter folly, the decision of that unhappy engine-room crew, Yet there was something almost splendid in their stubborn devotion to duty. Quietly they had looked death in the face, a horrible, lingering death, and had not flinched. And days later, when the steamer had burned herself out and lay grounded in the mud, cold and black, the wreckers found these faithful, though mistaken, men still at their post, still by their engines, where they had waited in spite of everything. Where they had perished. All this time the Van Wyck had been working on the sail. But in a harder fight, for the flames raged here as fiercely on the Bremen, while the smaller fireboat could throw against them only twenty five tons a minute, which was not enough. So now, when all had been done that could be done for the Bremen, orders came that the New Yorker too turn her streams against the sail, and a little later the 2 fireboats were in massed attack upon the unhappy liner, which swung down the bay like a blazing island, and presently grounded by the bow on the communipaw mud-flats, and rested there for the last agony. The story of those tragic hours is not for telling now. There were more heroic rescues. There were brave attempts at rescue that availed nothing. The fire-lads stood on the hurricane-deck, with flames roaring about them, and water up to their knees surging past like a mill-race. It was the return torrent from their own nozzles. Foot by foot the stern settled, and the water crept nearer, nearer to the open portholes. In the large state-room aft, fourteen men and one woman gave a noble picture of resignation in the face of an awful death. Hemmed in there between fire and water, they prayed quietly, and thanked the fire-lads for the cups of water passed in through the porthole, and waved good-bye, as the stern gave a final lurch, and went down. Nor does this end the record of that day, for there was still the main to fight for, and at eleven o'clock that night the New Yorker steamed up the river, and caught the third liner, as the flood-tide bore her stern first toward the flats of Weehawken. She had been blazing for eight hours, and was red-hot now from the water-line up. It seemed incredible that there could be a living thing aboard her, yet they went to work in the old way, and within an hour had dragged out through the coal-hole a blackened and frightened company, more than a score of boiler cleaners and coal handlers who had somehow lived through those fearful hours by burrowing down in the deepest bunkers far below the water level. After this, the fireboats did other things. The End of Section 4 Recording by Kirby Bonds